You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manifest Destiny. When I was in seventh grade, I had this social studies teacher, Mrs. Fosnott, and I promise that was her name. Mrs. Fosnott's teaching style was heavy on, uh, jingoism. Her American history lectures were these extremely lionized, hagiographic, rah-rah patriotism kind of affairs. She brought an implied brass section to every zippy, peppy lesson. And she hit all the high notes, of course. The Boston Tea Party. Saving the day in World War I. Saving the day in World War II. Meanwhile, the minor chords were a bit more muted. She got quieter, slower, stiffer when she had to talk about McCarthyism or Japanese internment, for instance. Listening to her long sessions, then, became these almost symphonic experiences, where the orchestra would drop to a languorous pianissimo, or build to a booming percussive crescendo from moment to moment, relative to Mrs. Fosnott's feelings of patriotism about the subjects at hand. And there was one number in her routine that was louder and more uplifting than any other, Mrs. Fosnott's equivalent to Berlioz's apotheoses. Manifest Destiny. I remember her walking into class and exclaiming the words, septuagenarian fists shaking in the air. She bounced and jumped about like one of her students describing a new Mario game. Okay, me, like, like how I would have been describing a new Mario game. To Mrs. Fosnott, nothing symbolized the greatness of America like Manifest Destiny. I think all Americans know about Manifest Destiny in some shape or another, but we're international now, baby. You guys are all over the world, including a surprising number in Brazil, Obrigado para Escutando, and many of you may have never heard the phrase at all before. So, allow me to give you my abridged, paraphrased version of what Mrs. Fosnott had to say on the subject some... 20 years ago? No, it's more than that. Oh no, I'm old. According to Mrs. Fosnott, Manifest Destiny was the rallying cry, the hymn of liberty that unified all Americans of the 19th century to turn west, to cross the 100th meridian into new lands like Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Utah, to tame the whole of the continent and bring it under the soft yet firm heel of American freedom. 
In Mrs. Fosnott's thunderous estimation, it was Manifest Destiny that was principally responsible for building the America we know and unequivocally love today. Now that you know all that, let me fail entirely to surprise you by saying every last thing Mrs. Fosnott so vigorously attempted to impart upon me and my class of distractible adolescents was 100% wrong. Totally wrong. In the words of Wolfgang Pauli, it was not even wrong. This agitprop telling of Manifest Destiny totally neglects the xenophobia and white supremacism that undergirded the concept. It neglects the genocide of Native Americans, the wars of territory with Mexico, the friction over whether new territories claimed in this ridiculous land grab should be free states or slave-owning ones. It misses the environmental degradation, the destruction of the American prairie, the near extinction of the bison, the total eradication of the passenger pigeon. That's all as obvious as it is terrible. But Mrs. Fosnott was wrong in still more subtle ways. Like that Manifest Destiny was never much of a rallying cry. Never a well-defined policy idea. It was just a phrase some guy wrote in a newspaper once. And not a very popular one. Most elected leaders rejected Manifest Destiny, whatever it was, and even those who were for it were more for it in theory than practice. And the same went for the American people. Westward expansion is fine as an idea, they said, but, like, have you ever been west? It's awful out there. West of the 100th Meridian, the Colorado River, North America was arid, full of desert and dry brush and rocky earth. Nobody wanted to abandon the verdant, welcoming soil of Indiana or Illinois or Iowa to go try their luck in a vast, unending plain of scrubland. And no noble call for enlightening American democracy was going to change that. Manifest destiny didn't drive people west. Not very much, at least. Instead, it was a different phrase, a different idea that led Americans to pour themselves out across Colorado and Kansas and Nebraska. An idea almost entirely forgotten today that played the largest part in shaping the Western states. And an idea that, in its air, nearly doomed them. Mrs. Fosnott isn't going to like this story very much. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Make It Rain. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
The phrase, manifest destiny, was probably coined by columnist John O'Sullivan, who in 1845 wrote an essay for the New York Morning News in which he argued that the U.S. should control all of Oregon, which at that time was split between America and Britain. O'Sullivan's argument was that America had a claim to the whole of the state, nay, continent, and that claim, quote, is by the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which Providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us. In sum, O'Sullivan argued that between the United States and Britain, the United States should win in all territorial disputes because American democracy was morally superior to British monarchy, and as such, it was only moral that democracy prevail upon the whole of the hemisphere. There was no call for conquest, war, or subduing in O'Sullivan's editorial, just a belief in the moral goodness of the American system of government. Manifest destiny was not an entirely impotent notion. Arguably, it did inform a lot of U.S. policy over the years. The annexation of Texas, perhaps, the Mexican-American War, the Indian Wars, among other atrocities, as well as, as O'Sullivan had called for, the removal of Britain from Oregon. But it was always a contentious idea, even in theory. And what a lot of people might consider its greatest dividend, the settlement of the American West, was not within the power of a poetic maxim to achieve. Well, Technically, it was in the power of a poetic maxim to achieve, just not that one. But we'll get to that. In 1846, Oregon came entirely under American control, and that was very attractive. Between 46 and 69, some 400,000-odd settlers made their way from the East and Midwest through the Oregon Trail, for three main reasons. The first was the gold rush of 1849, and... Well, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. The second reason were the Homestead Acts, the first of which was passed in 1862. That act said that the government would grant a plot of up to 160 acres in the West to any U.S. citizen willing to settle and farm it for at least five years. That was a tremendously strong incentive. But it was nothing without the third reason. Reports were that the lands in Oregon were fertile and fallow, great for living and farming. Oregon, in short, was reputed to be a paradise for settlers. But the same couldn't be said for everything between Iowa and there. The 100th Meridian, which cuts through the middle of North and South Dakota, down Nebraska, Kansas, slices the panhandle of Oklahoma, and down through the western third of Texas, is a hard dividing line on the North American continent. By the time the U.S. acquired Oregon, the whole of the area between the 100th and the West Coast was known as the Great American Desert, and that was a well-earned title. It might not look like what comes to mind when you hear the term desert, but the difference in annual rainfall between the East and the West is striking. In Ohio, you're looking at about 38 inches of precipitation per year, average. In Kansas, west of the 100th, it's 25. A little further west into Montana, you're looking at about 14. And those western averages are far more variable than their eastern counterparts, with periods of drought or flooding being far more serious and sustained than anything you're likely to see in Indiana or Connecticut or... I don't know. How about New Jersey? Shout out to New Jersey! New Jersey loves shout outs. 
So as wagon trains made their way west, they conspicuously didn't stop in New Mexico or Colorado or Montana or the Dakotas. The Homestead Acts allowed people to make claims on those lands, but who would want to? And how could you farm for five years in a barren, arid desert? Some people did stop and lay roots in the West. And those people are crucial to our story, but they were also outliers. People who meant to get to Oregon but fell short. Or else long-odds players who thought they smelled an interesting bet. Or a third, more canny group who set up shops, stores, and waypoints along the trail, hoping to make their fortune tending to the Western travelers as they went. Whatever the motives or circumstances, the number of people who landed in the West was small. But there were enough people, just enough, to start sending back news. And the news they were sending back was, There's water here. The drip of rumors began way back in the 1830s. Writing about his time as a trader on the Santa Fe Trail during the decade, Josiah Gregg noted that many of the early settlers in New Mexico were noticing increases in rainfall. These observations didn't square with surveys taken by the railways, government agencies, scientists, or journalists, but they were out there, nonetheless, even before the migration west clicked fully into gear. Still, most Americans believed that the lands west of the 100th Meridian were basically uninhabitable. In fact, the general consensus was more extreme even than the reality. But after the Civil War ended in 1865, a new view began to usurp that old one. In the 1860s, Signal Corps data of rainfall in the West experienced an uptick, and accounts from the aforementioned Western settlers said the same. It was beginning to rain in the Great American Desert. Western settlers described higher rainfall, larger rivers, new springs, and more plentiful vegetation. Mormons in Utah talked of a fundamental change in the climate. In 1865, Samuel Bowles, editor of the Springfield Republican, described the West as dependent mainly and perpetually on irrigation and of limited agricultural potential. Four years later, in 1869, he returned to the plains and changed his tune, saying that indeed the rains had come to, quote, all our Western regions under settlement. All those contrarian Western settlers who'd bet the hard way on farming Idaho or Wyoming suddenly looked like they were on the way to a jackpot. But how? What could have been happening west of the 100th to so fundamentally change it? The people of the plains had an inkling, like a folk belief, but even more nebulous. According to those Western settlers who were watching their surroundings green and wetten, the explanation had to have something to do with them. Somehow, just as they arrived, the climate softened. And the more neighbors who joined them, the wetter things got. They didn't know why that would be, necessarily, just that it seemed to be the case. Maybe it was an act of divine providence, God delivering unto his faithful a reward for their toil. Or maybe it was something about people themselves, what they were doing to the land. Maybe they were changing the West through sheer force of will. Some version of this belief existed for decades, but it was a whispered thing, a local matter. It was in 1866 that the volume got turned up through the newspapers. In June of that year, Bayard Taylor wrote to the New York Tribune 
that cultivation or time and settlement would soon subdue the arid lands of Kansas and Denver. Around the same time, Cyrus Thomas, an entomologist, archaeologist, and climatologist, looked at the rainfall and cultivar data of Colorado and concluded that, yes, the climate was changing. Colorado was experiencing more rainfall, Thomas said. But more than that, he said that that change in precipitation appeared to be permanent. And maybe most importantly, he keyed the change back precisely to the time that the first settlers began farming there. Something was officially up. The facts were evident, written in letters from settlers, printed in reputed newspapers, and acknowledged by respected scientists. The West was turning wet as people crossed into it. Now, the question was, why? Soon enough, a couple of theories began to emerge. The first came from Ferdinand Vanderveer Hayden, the most famous geologist of the age. I know that sounds like a backhanded compliment. Quick, who's the most famous geologist of this age? And I just had the thought that there might be somebody listening who was able to answer that really easily and is feeling insufferably smug about it. No, don't feel embarrassed now. You earned it. Beam your pride. My point is, famous geologist might seem like a bit of an oxymoron, but Hayden really was one. Aside from his service during the Civil War, he spent most of his adult life surveying the West, and that made him a super cool explorer. He'd go on in the 1870s to survey the Grand Canyon, and his reports on it would rivet the nation and directly contribute to the founding of the National Park System. But we're interested in his work from 1867. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Before the Civil War, Hayden had been exploring, documenting, and measuring the West, and his belief at that point was that the Rocky Mountains kept all moisture out of the plains. But after he was done serving the Union Army as a physician, he returned to Nebraska and Missouri, saw the change in climate, and posited a new hypothesis. Trees. It was the trees that settlers were planting on their farmsteads that was adding moisture and then precipitation to the air. If more trees were planted on the scrub and grasslands, the results would prove increasingly miraculous. He called for the return of forests to the treeless west, and promised that the rains would come with them. The same year as he laid out his new idea, he was named Geologist in Charge of the United States Geological and Geographical Survey of the Territories, 
For years to come, he would send annual and semi-annual reports on the state and nature of the American West, and in almost all of them there would be some reference to the trees which were changing it. In the 1870 and 71 reports, one of Hayden's aides was named Richard Smith Elliott. Throughout Elliott's life, he found himself over and over again working in or for the Plains. He advocated for a Pacific Railway in the 1850s, sold real estate to homesteaders from St. Louis, and marched with the Army of the West to Santa Fe. But when working for Hayden's survey, Elliott's attentions turned towards the rain, and how to get it falling on the plain, mainly. Between Hayden's data and theories and the writings of Samuel Bowles, that editor from the Springfield Republican, Elliott became convinced of an even bigger idea. Elliott believed that Americans could transform the West entirely into well-wedded farmland, and he had a lot of thoughts on how to do it. Elliott bought Hayden's tree idea, but he didn't stop there. He claimed that planting taller grasses would help, as they would block sun and heat from hitting the ground, which would, uh, I don't know, somehow make more moisture happen. Not a lot of what Elliott said scanned logically. And the sheer volume of causes he proposed simultaneously for the increased rainfall is staggering. Maybe the vibrations of human activity, like, say, trains or telegraph wires, encouraged clouds to grow. Maybe increased smoke in the air, like from, say, trains, encouraged rain to fall. Maybe moving soil about, like, say, when building a railway, kicked moisture up into the air. That one there, about the soil? That's the important one. In 1879, Samuel Augie, a professor at the University of Nebraska, released Sketches of the Geography and Geology of Nebraska, in which he, too, claimed that rainfall had drastically increased in the 1870s compared to the 1860s. He then went on to analyze possible causes. 1. Maybe rainfall patterns are cyclical, and the 70s were just at the tippy-top of that sine wave. Not to give the game away or anything, but this is the right answer. But Augie rejected it, because the increase in rainfall was regional. The East wasn't experiencing monsoons or anything, after all, and it didn't make sense to him that one area could see such a cycle while another did not. 2. Augie looked at Elliot's idea that the building of, or vibrations from, telegraphs and railroads... It was always railroads with Elliot, wasn't it? That's weird. That's probably nothing. Anyway, he looked at the idea that that was causing the rains to fall, and he rejected it too. For Augie, this came down to regionalism again, although he was a bit smarter about it here. There were plenty of railroads and telegraph lines in the east, so if those caused rain to increase, why was Connecticut getting the same moisture as always? 3. Hayden's tree planting theory. No good either. According to Augie's data, the rain increase had begun before the planting and maturing of trees in Nebraska had begun in full enough force to be a factor. That left Augie to advocate for that other of Elliot's notions, soil. Augie was an academic, so even though he was pulling this theory together basically out of nothing, he still managed to make it dry and difficult to grasp. By turning and tilling the earth, he theorized that pioneers were increasing the absorptive power of the land. The ground would take in more passing moisture the more it was upturned, and then that moisture would release straight up into clouds and then, finally, rain. It was a sort of confused and confusing hypothesis. 
The mechanism was far too complicated to take in at a glance, and when you looked at it closer, it was preposterous. But Augie's idea had two things working for it. First off, the idea that turning soil could create rain was already out there in the superstitions of those who had been settling the West. So to many people, this wasn't a new concept, but a triumphant scientific validation of an old one. The second thing was a man named Charles Dana Wilbur. Wilbur wasn't a scientist, not really, but he considered himself an amateur geologist and meteorologist. Somewhere along the line, Wilbur got his hands on Augie's theory and did something that Augie couldn't. Sold it. Wilbur had the gift of gab and an uncanny sense for peddling ideas to the public. In 1881, he published his own take on the rains in the West, entitled The Great Valleys and Prairies of Nebraska and the Northwest. Here's a paragraph that exemplifies it. Suppose an army of frontier farmers, 50 miles in width, from Manitoba to Texas, could, acting in concert, turn over the prairie sod, and after deep plowing and receiving the rain and moisture, present a new surface of green-growing crops instead of dry, hard-baked earth covered with sparse buffalo grass. No one can question or doubt the inevitable effect of this cooling, condensing surface upon the moisture in the atmosphere as it moves over by the western winds. A reduction of temperature must at once occur, accompanied by the usual phenomena of showers. The chief agency in this transformation is agriculture. To be more concise, rain follows the plow. And there it is. The phrase that moved America West. That day, when Mrs. Fosnott stormed into my classroom, exclaiming to all 7th heaven and 7th grade hormones with her best brass backing, Manifest Destiny? She should have been shouting, Rain follows the plow. Wilbur spreads this gospel. That's not a figure of speech. He frames his proclamation as a gospel. Here, listen. Writes Wilbur, In this miracle of progress, the plow was the unerring prophet, the procuring cause, not by any magic or enchantment, not by incantations or offerings, but instead by the sweat of his face, toiling with his hands, man can persuade the heavens to yield their treasures of dew and rain upon the land he has chosen for his dwelling. The raindrop never fails to fall and answer to the imploring power or prayer of labor. Wilbur disseminated his idea widely, spreading books, pamphlets, speaking gigs, and political lobbying around the nation. Rain follows the plow, spread on the wind. And settlers began to move west by the thousands, secure in the knowledge that their moxie would carry them to prosperity. But that isn't what happened, because, naturally, the rain does not follow the plow. Not at all. 
Heavier-than-average rains mostly continued throughout the 1880s as more and more homesteaders made their way across the 100th meridian. Then, in 1890, something funny happened. A drought. A pretty severe one. 17 inches of rain for western Kansas the whole year. It was a rough but isolated event. The next year, things were back to what folks thought was the new normal. And 1892 was pretty wet, too. Still, 1890 was a harbinger of things to come, a warning signal that maybe things were not as they appeared. And those that failed to heed that warning were in for a shock. 1893. The drought of 1893 was severe, and 1894 was even worse. Crops failed, farms folded, people scattered. The population of western Kansas, for example, fell by more than 25%. In the beginning of 1893, there were more than 14,000 farms in the area. By the end of 1894, there were less than 9,000. But the effects were even more severe and diffuse than that. Earlier this season, we looked at William George Crush, who tried to save his flagging railway company by running two trains into one another. Why were the railway companies flagging? Because rain follows the plow. Throughout the 1870s and 80s, all of this excitement about the new, fertile West meant people needed ways to get there. So the rail companies began building new track like crazy, buying one another up, taking themselves public, selling stocks. There was a locomotive bubble, and the drought burst that bubble. The Panic of 1893 was the most severe economic downturn the United States had ever faced. The Philadelphia and Reading railroads went bust. Then the National Cordage Company, the Northern Pacific Railway, the Union Pacific Railroad, and the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad followed. The stock market tumbled. People pulled their money out of the market and tried to put it into federal gold bonds, but the government ran out of gold and the panic redoubled. Unemployment hit 25%. There were other factors at play in the panic, but mainly... You can blame one innocent idea carved out by well-meaning professional and amateur scientists like Augie, Elliot, and Wilbur. Rain follows the plow. Oh, wait, hold up, wait. Uh, did I say innocent? Did I say well-meaning? No, that's all wrong. Because most of the players we've talked about in this story weren't dispassionate observers. Take Richard Smith Elliott, for example. The guy who proposed all those possible mechanisms for why rainfall would be increasing, each of which, by some strange coincidence, favored the railroads? Well, he worked for, take a wild guess, the railroads. His title was industrial agent for the Kansas Pacific Railroad. In practice, that made him head of PR. Elliot proposed that moving soil to build railroads made it rain. He proposed that the vibrations of trains running on tracks made it rain. He proposed that the smoke from the trains made it rain. He followed Hayden's belief, but even that was promotion for the railroads. Elliot launched programs to plant trees and other large plants alongside of the railways, and then he invited reporters to tour the lines, touting the environmental good his company was doing. And when his subordinates told him the trees were struggling or dying from lack of water, 
Elliot had no time for that. The press tours had already gone through. And Samuel Augie, the Nebraska scientist who meticulously laid out the hypothesis? He had no science background at all. He was a Lutheran minister who stumbled his way into teaching natural science. And he was a ceaseless booster of Nebraska. He fell in love with the area and did everything he could for almost his whole life to convince people to move in. And then there's Charles Dana Wilbur. <laughs> what can you say about Charles Dana Wilbur? Like Elliot, he worked for the railroads as an advance man and an assayer. But by the time he started seriously backing his phrase, rain follows the plow, he was mostly working as a land speculator, selling plots to the very settlers he was encouraging to travel west. He literally founded a whole town in Nebraska called Wilbur, naturally, although he himself stayed mostly in the fertile, wet Midwestern landscape of the Fox Valley, Aurora, Illinois. Wilbur and Augie and Elliot may have believed their ideas. Honestly, I have no concrete reason to believe otherwise. It's easy to look at their corrupting interests and conclude that they must have been bilking the nation, playing Pied Piper to thousands of optimistic or desperate settlers. But that would be the easy explanation. I believe the truth is that most successful con men first managed to con themselves. That we're all more susceptible, not by a little, but by a lot, to believing ideas that suit our interests, that conveniently shape the world into what we wish it would be, than we are open-minded towards facts that cut against us. And that omnipresent prejudice, left unchecked, can lead us into all kinds of paranoia and cravenness. Augie and Wilbur certainly appear to have fallen prey to that. As the move west began, the government sent out surveyors and committees to see whether the existent homestead size would be enough for people putting down roots in the Great Plains. Experts and analysts argued that if people were going to try to farm these lands, they'd need different techniques and far more acreage than the typical 160. Augie and Wilbur fought those experts and fought them dirty. Wilbur, in particular, wrote and spoke at length about how the move to expand homestead size was really the work of a secret cabal of East Coast aristocrats looking to rob the common man of family-sized farms for the benefit of rich cattlemen and New York and Chicago commodities interests. He even took his case directly to President Garfield and succeeded. Though the droughts of the 1890s broke the stream of migrants into the area, the foundational belief that rain follows the plow was slow to die. Even through the 1920s, you can find it as a topic at agricultural conventions. But for the most part, the spell was broken by the turn of the century. New and equally frivolous ideas, like dry farming and dynamiting the skies, took its place. Finally, there are two ironic, long-tail consequences of rain follows the plow. The first you may have already thought of, the Dust Bowl. The farming techniques of deep digging and tilling, which started as an effort to coax the sky to rain, ended up responsible for the massive dust storms that plagued the West in the 1930s, exacerbating the Great Depression. Ultimately, the techniques that were supposed to make the West less desert-like ended up contributing to the driest, most desperate period of the region. The other ironic product of Rain Follows the Plow is a bit of a stretch, a bit of a journey, but it deserves to be said anyway. Those settlers who moved west under the hopes that they could change the climate by farming 
are the same settlers whose abandoned or failing farms were bought up by oil speculators in the early 1900s. Oil speculators who triggered the petroleum age, which has led us to the current age of global warming. The people of the 1800s who thought mankind could change the climate turned out to be right after all, in the worst possible way. From the home of the Mercantile Exchange, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. We used to call her, check this out, Mrs. Fuzznut. It's pretty clever, huh?